So our, our scripture continues the story of, that we read at our call to worship, the story of the apostles discovering that the Jesus who they saw die on the cross has now risen again from the dead and is alive again. And uh, if you know the story, the broad outlines of it as it's told in the Bible, the disciples see him and they're all surprised, but when they see him, there's one disciple who wasn't there, one disciple who wasn't available the first time he appeared to the other disciples, and that creates some consternation among the disciples. His name was Thomas, and it's his story that we're going to look at briefly this morning. It comes from John chapter 20, starting verse 24. It's printed in your program if you'd like to follow along. Thomas was called the twin, and he was one of the twelve, but he was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the marks of the nails in his hands, and put my finger into the mark of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that were not written down in this book. But these were written so that you would believe and that in believing you might have life through his name. This is God's word for God's people this morning. Now, it strikes me that every religion, every faith tradition has their particular holidays. One of the things that's unique about Christian holidays and the, the core of the Christian doctrine, even as, as it's encapsulated in something like the Apostles' Creed, is that our holidays are grounded in actual historic events, particularly Christmas when God became a man in Bethlehem and the very first Christmas, and then Easter when Jesus rose again from the dead and conquered death, for all of us. And you know, it's an amazing fact of uh, human, of world culture that today, every time someone remembers or, or notes what year it is, they always make reference consciously or unconsciously, directly or indirectly, to Jesus. What year is it? It's 2018. 2018 from what? 2,818 years since when? And the answer is, well, approximately 2,018 years since Jesus was born, since that very first Christmas. And so, every, you know, around the world, everyone who's in civilization, when they recognize the year it is, there's a tacit recognition that Jesus, Jesus coming, Jesus' birth is the event from which all of history is timed. And 
And that's important to the Christian faith because one of the things that the Christian faith teaches is because God entered into history on the first Christmas, because God conquered death on the first Easter, that's why we can have hope that he's going to enter into our story and why we can have hope even in, when life gets awful and we face death ourselves, that there is hope in the face of the worst things that life throws at us because Jesus has risen, because God has entered history and because our faith is based in a reality. One of the things that's striking about the Gospels as you read them here and in other places is that the first Easter was confusing to everybody. Everybody except for Jesus was taken by surprise at what happened on the first Easter. Uh, you know, everybody needed to be convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. None of the disciples were saying when he died, okay, just wait three days and see what happens. They were all like, he died and they said, it's over. This is absolutely hopeless and there is no upside. Apparently he's not who he said he was. Apparently there's actually no hope. We got to go back to fishing or whatever we're going to do. When Jesus, when they went to the tomb, they fully expected to see a dead body there and they were just going to do their ceremonial thing and put some spices on the dead body, pay their respects and move on with their life. They were shocked to discover that the, that the tomb was empty. And then they assumed that, well, someone must have taken the body until they saw him. And he identified himself, not as the gardener, not as an angel, but as Jesus who has now risen from the dead. But then as the story goes, like we said, Thomas wasn't there for the, uh, the, that first appearance of Jesus. And so all 10 other disciples come to Thomas and say, we've seen the Lord, he's risen. And Thomas says, you guys are all crazy. How can you possibly believe that? That's the most ridiculous thing. We've all seen that he's dead. We've all seen that he's gone. So how can we possibly, how can you possibly be saying this? I am absolutely not going to believe this unless I can personally touch his hands where the nails went in and touch his side where the spear pierced him. And so that's the challenge of faith. Uh, you know, I, I think that one of the things that, that's, that we've got to get over is this condescending modern view that modern people tend to have is that, well, 2,000 years ago, people were gullible. They weren't enlightened like we are. And so it was easy for them to believe in things like the resurrection. It was easy for them to believe in demon possession and things like that. And, and, and of course, they were tricked into believing that Jesus had risen from the dead because people were easily tricked then. But what you see in the Bible... And what you see if you study the uh, Greek culture and, and, and the views of the day, nobody believed in a resurrection. The disciples didn't expect a resurrection. You remember, there's a place, an interesting place in the gospel where Jesus says to his disciples, you know, they were absolutely clueless, but it wasn't because Jesus didn't communicate with them, kind of like some husbands I know. Um, but uh, Jesus says to them over and over again, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be crucified, but then three days later I'm going to rise from the dead. And it says the disciples walked on and they discussed among themselves what rising from the dead might have meant. They had no idea what he was talking about. And when they saw him die, they assumed that he wasn't the Messiah, because a crucified Messiah, by definition to the Israelites, was a failed Messiah. And 
a, a Messiah who went and was hung on a cross was a, a Messiah who, from their understanding, was, was not the Messiah, was just another charlatan like many others who had come before him. And so they had to see Jesus personally to realize that he had risen from the dead. But then, like I say, Thomas, even though he had the testimony of 10 other guys, it was hard for him to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. He says, um, he says to them, you know, you guys are all nuts, but we can stay friends even though I don't believe. So, so he's hanging around with them and, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And, and you got to understand, one of the things that's going on here is Tom, Thomas would be one of the apostles. If you know the history of the church, Thomas actually did a mission trip that's not recorded in the Bible, but he went all the way to India and started what is the Martoma Church of India. And so the church in India is, is one of the churches that traces itself back to, the, to an apostolic origin through the missionary work of Thomas. But a key qualification of the apostles to be an apostle is you had to have personally seen the risen Christ. And so Thomas is being true to himself, saying, until I see this, I will not believe. And all the apostles together formed this unified witness to the world because they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. They were able to convince, to, to proclaim that message to the world. Paul puts it this way in, in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to pop that up on the, the screen. Oh, you don't have it? Okay. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, For I passed on to you as most important what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so Paul, Paul says, you know, the apostolic message in a nutshell is this. Jesus died for our sins and three days later he rose again. And then he goes on to say, by this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And so that was the apostles' message, very simply. And very succinctly, it was Jesus died for our sins, and then Jesus rose again, and because of that, we can have life, and because of that, everything is different. And now, one of the striking facts of history, one of the difficult things to get over is the, is, is the story of the expansion of the church in the first century, and how this small group of unschooled, ordinary men were able to start a movement in Jerusalem, which, which you know, was a big deal to the Jews, but Jerusalem was sort of a marginal city and a marginal province of the Roman Empire at the time. And so the, these, this small group of guys who had nothing going for them, they weren't connected to any power centers, they weren't influential politicians or anything, they weren't wealthy, but they started this movement proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and that he had risen from the dead. And this movement in one generation covered the whole Roman Empire, went as far south as Egypt and Ethiopia, went as far east as, as India, and by 313 conquered the Roman Empire when Const the, the Emperor Const Constantine converted to Christianity and established the Roman Empire as a, essentially a, a Christian nation. Uh, you know, the, the questions are raised about the authenticity of Const Constantine's conversion and, and what it meant for, for uh, the Roman Empire to become a Christian empire. But one of the things that's striking to me is, regardless, Christianity by 3, 
by 313 AD had become such a pervasive force that it was politically expedient for the Roman Empire to, to uh, establish Christianity as the, the faith of the empire in order to unify the empire and to hold things together. And it was this basic message. Jesus died for our sins, and then Jesus rose from the dead. And the, the disadvantage of a message like that is it's so easy to disprove. I mean, the, the church and the apostles had many enemies early on, and if someone had just produced the body or produced some, some, some evidence that Jesus had not risen from the dead, that he was still dead, it would have been the end of their message. Or if one of the dozens, there, there were the 12 disciples, but then they had, they had uh, hundreds of people who were sort of part of their movement in those early days who Jesus appeared to. And if one of those... If, if that had been a conspiracy to fool the world about the resurrection of Jesus, and one of those people who had been in on the conspiracy had flipped and had exposed the conspiracy, the whole story would have come crumbling down. But instead, you know the story. All of those apostles and many of their followers actually were willing to be tortured and to die rather than renounce the story of the resurrection of Jesus. As someone has said, why is it that a, message, that, a, that a movement that was based on the message that Jesus has risen from the dead was such a powerful force in the first century when it had so nothing else going for it? The most reasonable answer to that question is because Jesus rose from the dead. If it wasn't true, that movement wouldn't have been able to sustain itself. So that's the challenge of faith for all of us. If they could believe it, can you believe it? Can you believe that about 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross for your sins, and then three days later rose from the dead? Can you believe that? That's the heart of the Christian faith. So that's the challenge of faith for us and for everybody, the challenge for a watching world. How do you explain the resurrection of the dead. The second thing I want to show you is the challenge of scars. It's interesting. Thomas says, unless I see his hands and put my finger in his side, I will never, I will never believe. You know, this is an interesting thing. Thomas is like, you know, I'm not even going to just believe my eyes. I need to actually touch my, I want to put my hand in the wound that the that the, the spear made. I saw that spear go in, and I'm not going to believe it's really him unless I, can see, unless I can see that wound and actually touch it there. And when he sees Jesus, one of the things that's interesting is it, it says, once he sees Jesus and Jesus appears to him and says, Thomas, here I am. Look at my hands. Look at my side. Thomas doesn't need to be doesn't need to touch him anymore. He's completely convinced. The vision of Jesus persuades him in that moment because it transcend the vision of Jesus that he has transcends that type of knowing, that type of understanding of what what is going on. He he uh, he he no longer he's he's completely convinced simply by the vision of Jesus. And you know, I think that that says something to all of us. I, I think. You know, depending on where you're at in your Christian journey, where you're at in trying to understand the faith, sometimes we say, well, I need these signs or I need something to persuade me of this, this truth. But when we see Jesus, then we know. 
and that's what happened to Thomas here. But I want to ask a question. You know, it's an interesting thing. Why does Jesus still have scars? Here he's in his resurrected body, his permanent body, his glorified form, and yet he still has scars. He can say to Thomas, look at my hands. You can see where the nails went in. It hasn't healed. It hasn't changed. Look at my side. You can see where the spear pierced my side. He's still... He still has these scars. And I think the answer is that in his resurrected body, these scars remain because now they're not part of his imperfection, but they're part of his perfection. They're not part of his humiliation, but now in his resurrected, triumphal, victorious body, they're part of his exaltation. And this is instructive, I think, for all of us as we go through life. You know, as you go through life, there's all these things that are chasing after us that are trying to kill us. And, you know, when you're young, you say, well, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. But then you get a little older, and I think your perspective changes, and you say, well, what doesn't kill me is probably going to leave a mark, but that doesn't mind. I don't have, don't have that much longer to live. But, uh, but, but these scars come into our lives and they collect over time. You know, some of us have scars from things that happened to us in childhood. Some of us have scars that were inflicted by the malevolence of others. Some of us have scars that were put on us through accidents that happened or through diseases. Some of us have scars where a, a surgeon's scalpel pierced our skin to rescue us from something. But these, these scars accumulate in our lives, accumulate in our bodies. Some are visible, some are invisible, uh, some are self-inflicted scars, some are because the people who we depended on proved undependable one way or another. Uh, some are because we've been attacked or were subject to accidents, you know, and we live with these scars. In fact, I think as we, as we grow, as we go through life, these scars accumulate in our, on our lives, on our bodies, and we can never get rid of them. That's, that's the nature of scars. And so what we tend to do is we adjust our lifestyle to the scars that we've accumulated. And, you know, maybe you dress a certain way, you wear your hair a certain way, you always wear a hat or whatever. You do what you have to do to kind of cover up those scars. In our day and age, you know, doctors can do something for some of the scars we have, but then other scars are a little harder to hide. And you all know the experience of, uh, you know, maybe seeing, coming across someone who's deeply scarred and can't hide it, maybe because their face has been disfigured or maybe because they've just decided they don't care anymore and they're not going to hide it. And that kind of that, uh, you have that, that, you know, that, 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 interaction where you're, you're like, well, should I ask them what happened to their face or should I just try to look past that and just uh, deal with them personally? And we have, we have those experiences. But here, something profound here, because Jesus comes in in his resurrected, glorified, immortal state, and he's known by his scars. And Bible says even in the book of Revelation, the, the apostle has this vision of heaven and he says, in the center of the throne, they're crying out, worthy, worthy, worthy. And, they, and he looks, and there at the center of the throne, surrounded by the angels, is a lamb 
looking like it had been slain. Jesus is known by his scars. This is how God works. This is how the gospel works. He takes your shame. He takes your brokenness. He takes the evil of others. He takes your own sin and failure, the very things that you want to hide, the very things that you're ashamed of, and he redeems you at that, that point. That's where his glory is revealed. That's where his strength is applied in your life. That's where his victory is experienced. And that's where his might is made real in your life. That's what redemption is. It's precisely at the point of your scars, at the, the very things that were trying to kill you, where you experience his redemption and where you experience his power. The pro that's the promise of redemption for all who follow him. Jesus' cross left scars on him. Your cross will leave scars on you. But what God's grace does is he converts those scars into your glory. Write this verse down. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 puts it this way. Our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So what he's saying there, our new bodies, our new lives, they'll, they'll still have scars, but rather than our scars being something to be ashamed of, rather than them being a disability that we try to hide, rather than them being something awkward that we don't want people to see and and so we always dress a certain way to cover those things up. They won't be part of our imperfection, but in, in our new life, they'll be part of our perfection. They won't be our shame. They'll be our glory. They won't be our failure. They'll be the place where God's grace was made real to us. That's what God does with your scars. They'll not be something that we look away from, but they'll be something we look at because we'll say, this scar, this is the place where God worked in my life. This is the place where God healed me. This is the place and this is the way that I experienced God's redemption in my life. All of your pain that God applies His grace to, all of your scars that you carry by faith are going to find their way into your beauty and your glory when you are made new, just as it did for Jesus. The story of Jesus is also the story of you. We trust in the one who was crushed for our iniquities, who was wounded for our transgressions, on whom the punishment that brought peace was laid. We can have hope that the scars we have, no matter how disabling or disfiguring, or we might think ugly or or painful they might be, that those scars are the place where his glory is going to be manifest. And your light, Paul, Paul the Apostle said this, my light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, so there's the challenge of scars. Jesus has his scars, but they're his glory, and your scars will be turned into your glory as God works in and through you. And finally, I want to show you the promise of blessing. So Jesus comes to Thomas. Thomas believes, and everybody is, and, and Jesus says to him, 
verse 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed is everybody who has not seen and yet believes. Like I said, Thomas sees Jesus and all of a sudden he has, he had said previously, I'm not going to believe that he's risen from the dead unless I can, until I can touch his hands and touch his side and see the holes that are in him and, and see that it's really, really him. But once he sees him, there's no need to touch because he knows that it's true. It's not that he knows that it's real. And what does he say? He says, Thomas says to him, verse 28, my Lord and my God. And now you got to understand for Thomas was a Jewish man in the first century. And that was a very inappropriate thing to say if it was just an exclamation. Like, like you might hear someone, someone say something like that, but they're, they're using it almost as a swear word. For Thomas, Thomas wouldn't have talked that way. They were much more careful with their language. For Thomas to say to the risen Christ, my Lord, my God, is to recognize that this man, this Jesus who was resurrected, was standing in front of him, was his king, was his Lord, and was indeed God incarnate. That's what, that's what uh, Thomas recognized here. And, you know, it's interesting Historians tell us that the Caesars, the rulers of the Roman Empire, would demand that people pay, pay homage to them. And, and Diocletian was one of the most notorious persecutors of the church in, uh, in, the, in the second and third century. And one of the things that historians tell us is that one of the pledges of allegiance he demanded of people was that they say, my Lord and my God, to Diocletian. But here... We see John, John's gospel sort of forming a rebuttal to that and reminding all of us that ultimately it's Jesus himself, the one who died for us and conquered death for us, who is our Lord and our God. And what you see here is this is not, when we talk about belief, it's not just simply affirming a few words about who Jesus is. It's saying, Jesus is my Lord. He's my king. He's the one whose rules I'm going to follow. He's the one whose, whose direction I'm going, to, I'm going to honor. And he's the one whose will I'm going to surrender to. That's what it means to say, well, that's what it meant for Thomas. That's what it means for any of us to say, my Lord, my God. It's to recognize that Jesus is my king. And I surrender to him. I yield to him. And also, to say he's my God is to recognize that, you know, if we don't, as someone has said, if we don't worship God, the problem is not that we don't worship anything. The problem is then we'll worship everything. And every God we were inclined to worship or tempted to worship is going to require that we make a sacrifice to him. But the God of the Bible, the Father of Jesus, is the one God who rather than requiring us to sacrifice to him, came and sacrificed himself for us. When we say, my Lord, my God, we're coming before the God who gave himself for us. And Jesus is, is not a God who demands that we sacrifice to him. He's a God who sacrifices for us and then invites us to trust in his sacrifice for us as the sufficient sacrifice for our lives.
there's a promise here, one of the Beatitudes in John. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. And that's a promise for any of us here. What does it take to experience God's blessing? What does it take to make God's blessing real in our life? Simply this, that even though we haven't seen Jesus, even though he doesn't show up here on Easter Sunday and say, here I am guys, touch my hands, here's the hole in my side, yet we believe. We believe based on the apostles' testimony, we believe based on the church's testimony, we believe based on the evidence that death has been conquered that there is hope for eternity because Jesus has risen from the dead. The Bible says, in the Gospel of John, it says that, that Jesus performed many signs along the way. And if you read the Gospel of John, you can get a catalog of those. Remember, the first one was he turned water into wine. He, he fed the 5,000. He healed the sick boy. He he gave sight to the blind. He healed a woman who was very ill. He, he raised Lazarus from the dead. These are many of the signs, those are some of the signs that Jesus did that are recorded in the Gospel of John. But the ultimate sign for all of us is the fact that he died on that cross and then three days later he rose from the dead. And all of these signs you know, feeding people, healing people, raising the dead, are giving us pictures. You know, Jesus didn't just do random magic tricks to impress people with his power. Every miracle he did gave us a picture of what the kingdom of God is going to be like, a place where we don't run out of food, a place where there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. And... So we look to the story of Jesus, and it's the basis for hope in the midst of the challenges we're facing, in the midst of the scars that we're accumulating, in the midst of the concerns and uncertainty that we live with. You know, the story of the crucifixion is a story of, it, of the apparent victory of sin and of death and of evil and of apostasy. And, you know, in our lives, the Bible tells us, and Jesus says, all of us, to, to, to know him, to belong to him, means we'll have to bear our own cross. And if we're going to know Christ, we're going to know the fellowship of sharing in that suffering at some level and in some way. But the story of the crucifixion isn't the whole story. There's also the power of the resurrection. God's power is stronger than the power of death. God's power is stronger than the power of evil. God's power is stronger than the power of pain that's around us. That God's power takes even our deepest brokenness, our most permanent hurts in this world, our greatest devastations in this life, and He redeems them. The story of the resurrection is simply this, that our light and momentary afflictions through the power of Christ and through the power of the resurrection are going to achieve for you and for me an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Let's pray. Father, pray for each one here. I pray particularly for the, the things that we brought to this place today that were 
afraid of, the things that we brought to this place today that were upset about, the things that we brought to this place today that, that, that are bringing us just a personal agony and fear. And I pray that you would show us how the power of the resurrection can give us hope even in the midst of that physical pain, that personal pain, that anguish that we carry. Gives us hope that the God who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to us as we trust in him. Give us that hope. Help us to believe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.